Well, once again, good morning, everybody. Here with me in Northville, want to welcome those of you joining us from our Farmington Hills campus. Good morning to you. Uh, good morning to those of you who worship online from elsewhere. And uh, today I want to especially welcome those of you at either campus that might be newer to our church. We are really glad that you have joined us. One of the stated core values of our church is thoughtful theology. Thoughtful theology. And by that, we mean primarily that we seek to understand and apply the Bible to all areas of life. We seek to understand and apply the Bible to all areas of life. And sometimes understanding and applying the Bible takes a little bit of work. Uh, let's be honest, as 21st century readers of the Bible, we have 2,000 years in some places, 3,000 years of a cultural gap to, uh, to span. And so we need to get into the history and the culture and what do those metaphors uh, mean. We want to make sure we're following what the Bible actually says. And so it takes a little work, uh, but the work is worth it, friends, because the Bible has gold for us today. Thoughtful theology also means for us that we welcome tough questions and we avoid simplistic answers. People have very real questions of faith, and that doesn't make them bad. It makes them thinking people. And so we want to say thinking people welcomed, questions welcomed, honest skeptics welcomed and respected. We want people to think. Thoughtful, thinking people of faith often really resonate with the Apostle Paul of the Bible and our man of the day for today's sermon. The Apostle Paul was educated and articulate and logical and philosophical. And if you're wired that way, Paul may be your man. In the first part of the book of Acts, uh, Peter is the main character. But in the second half of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul takes center stage. And we read about how the Apostle Paul shared faith in Jesus Christ with first Jew and then with non-Jew. In fact, the whole book of Acts, among other things, is the story of how the very first Christians shared the gospel of Jesus, first with people who were like them and then with people who were very different from them. And some of you are, are thinking, see, this is the problem that I have with Christians. Why do Christians always want people to believe what they believe? Can't they just leave well enough alone? And maybe you don't think of yourself as a Christian, but you've got a brother-in-law or a relative or someone at work who keeps bugging you. Why are they bugging you? And first of all, the reason they're bugging you is because they care about you. In the book of Acts, we read about people in a very tough time who discovered peace in the midst of insecurity. They discovered resources in the midst of turmoil. They discovered peace and purpose, and they wanted other people to know about that. This last week, I saw the movie, The Jesus Revolution. Anybody see that movie? It's fantastic. I recommend it. And it tells the very real story of the hippie movement of the 60s and 70s. Uh, I'm, I'm too young to have experienced that firsthand. Um, but some of you are qualified to speak from a firsthand experience, uh, a very real story. And what happened in this movie so brilliantly tells a story of how the hippies tried to find truth in drugs and in sex and in other things. And ultimately, they found truth in Jesus. And it's a story of hippies telling other hippies about Jesus. 
Now, maybe the person who first told you about Jesus um, didn't do a great job. Christians make a lot of mistakes, but cut them some slack because there's a, there's a whole lot of Christians in your family and in your workplace that will never say anything because they're afraid that they will do it wrong. They're afraid that you will reject them. And silence isn't loving either. So what are we Christians to do? How do we talk about Jesus in ways that are thoughtful, respectful, understandable in a culture that's increasingly moving more non-religious? Where do we even start? And today we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul how to engage people where they think. And this passage we're going to look at today, Acts 17, is one of the key passages in all the Bible about how to engage with culture. In fact, this passage, Acts 17, has been used uh, for many generations to train missionaries how to engage in a cross-cultural setting, and today this passage will teach us. Paul and his colleagues are traveling around Greece sharing the good news of Jesus. Paul didn't ordinarily travel alone. He's with Silas and Luke and Timothy. And the message of grace that they're sharing with people has been met in some places uh, with receptivity, in some places with skepticism, in some places with hostility, and in most places, all three. Receptivity, skepticism, and hostility. Because of the threats to Paul's life, Paul has to flee the city called Berea, and he goes to Athens. And he must have been excited because Athens was one of the most famous, beautiful, and important cities in the world. It was past prime as a political power, but Athens still was the intellectual capital of the world. Uh, it, It was the city of Socrates and Aristotle. Athens was the birthplace of democracy. And as someone like Paul, who is familiar with Greek philosophy and educated in a Greek university, he had to be a little bit excited to be there. Paul arrived ahead of his colleagues. He's by himself, and this is how the passage opened. While Paul was waiting for his colleagues in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. The Greeks had many gods, and so there were many temples, many idols, many altars all around the city. They were everywhere. In fact, in the first century, they would joke that Athens, the city of Athens, has more gods than it does people. And visitors to Athens would actually joke that it's easier in Athens to meet a statue than it is to meet an actual Athenian. These statues were everywhere. And while some tourists delighted in going to Athens and seeing the flamboyant display, for Paul, a good Jew, this was deeply troubling to him. And he had compassion on the people of that city. Much like when we read about Jesus entering Jerusalem, he looks out and it says he had compassion for the people because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And that's what Paul feels in that moment for the people of this great city. Paul did not look on the idol worshipers with condemnation, but with compassion. We live in a world today that is still full of idolatry. Our world might not have statues and temples and altars, but people in our culture still worship at the altar of narcissism and greed and sex and materialism. 
And like Paul, we should look on people with compassion. Every single person, even those whose lifestyle and beliefs run contrary to the scriptures, everybody matters to God. I recently heard an ancient story that rabbis would tell. It's something they would make up sometimes, these stories, to communicate a point. And in this story, the rabbis made up story, envisioned what heaven was like on the day that uh, people crossed the Red Sea. That all of the angels and all of heaven are looking down, and you know the story of the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts, and the people of God pass through on dry land. And then the Egyptian army follows them into the sea, and the waters close up on them. And in this imagined story, all the angels in heaven see this, and they all start to cheer and applaud. The bad guys got what was due them. And in this story, God raises his hand and silences them and says, the people of my hand, the people I've made with my hand are destroyed. And you would cheer? Even bad guys matter to God. He takes no pleasure in their demise, even when it's richly deserved. And that's the attitude we need to have toward people that we interact with whose lifestyle or values or attitudes or behavior or politics run contrary to our own. We need to be more gentle than judgmental. We need to be more compassionate than condemning. We need to be more sincere than self-righteous. Because believe me, people can tell the difference. We can either attack people or we can attract people people, and it's very difficult to do both at the same time. So Paul took a new approach in Athens. He went to the synagogue, as he often did when he visited his city and preached to the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, but then he also went to the marketplace to share his ideas. And this is the story that was read to you this morning. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took, uh, took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know this new teaching, uh, what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the greatest ideas. The marketplace was a place where they sold things, but it's also a place where they debated ideas, and the Athenians loved to talk about new ideas and philosophies. The two dominant philosophies in that time and place were the Epicureans and the Stoics. Epicureans followed the 3rd century BC philosopher and physicist Epicurus, who taught that everything happens by chance. Everything is random acts. The gods, he believed in the gods of the Greek pantheon, but the gods were distant, aloof, and uninvolved. And he thought when you died, that was it. There's no life after death. The primary goal of life is the absence of pain. That's the Epicureans. In contrast, the Stoics believed that everything in life was preordered and predetermined by the gods. So you might as well not complain about the lot you have because you can't do anything about it anyway. They believed the gods weren't distant, that the gods were everywhere and everything was God. And the reason we have life is there's a spark of divinity in each one of us. These two philosophies couldn't be more different 
And yet they shared the beliefs in all the gods of the Greek pantheon. They shared some similarities of uh, Greek paganism. Uh, And then they were so confused when the apostle Paul entered town. They could not understand Paul. First of all, Paul was a Jew, and Jews were not very well respected. But yet he spoke intelligently. He was educated. He was speaking their language, but he wasn't an Epicurean or a Stoic. Paul may have been the very first Christian ever to enter the city of Athens. And so they invite him to present his ideas to the Areopagus. And for someone trained in Greek philosophy, this had to be the honor of a lifetime. That word Areopagus is a Greek word coming from two Greek words, pegas meaning hill, and Ares is the name of one of the Greek gods better known by the Roman name Mars. Areopagus is the Greek word for Mars Hill. And if you come with me to a tour of Greece in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, I will take you to Mars Hill. It's still there. It's a big rock, a big hill overlooking the city of Athens, and we will stand right in the place that Paul made this famous speech. The word Areopagus refers to both the place and to the people that met there. In that day, there were 30 top philosophers who would sit together on the Areopagus. They were called the Areopagus, which is kind of the supreme court of Athens. These philosophers would debate and determine matters of ethics and philosophy and morals and spirituality for the people of Athens. And Paul was invited to present his teachings to the Areopagus. This is kind of a big deal. And picture the scene. They're all gathered there on this hill, on this rock, overlooking the city of Athens. The best educated, brightest minds in the Roman Empire are seated and are listening. Prominent citizens are around the perimeter, kind of listening in. Uh, And the Apostle Paul is an apostle, an evangelist, a church planter. This for him was the opportunity of a lifetime. If it were me, I would have been scared to death. Every word had to be right. All of history is listening. Paul is standing at the epicenter of philosophy and of paganism. What should Paul say? What would you say? Should he quote from the Bible? That's what he did in the synagogues, and it worked pretty well there. Should he tell them that they are sinners in need of a Savior? What should be his starting point? And then we read, the story goes on here in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. So notice Paul's approach in this particular situation. Paul did not begin with confrontation or condemnation, but with a compliment. I see that you are very religious people, and Paul knew his culture to know that group, they would find that an extreme compliment. Yes, we are very religious. Thank you very much for noticing. Yes. And Paul says, I walked around and looked at your objects of worship. Oh, how nice. He looked at our objects of worship. He begins with a compliment, and then he calls out what he sees 
a, a statue, a, a altar to an unknown god. And this too has a historical background. Six centuries earlier, Athens was under a great pestilence, a plague. People were dying. They didn't know what to do about it. And a creative philosopher, a Greek philosopher, Epimenides, proposed a unique solution. He said that flocks of black and white sheep should be released from the Areopagus throughout the city of Athens. And wherever each sheep laid down, the sheep should be sacrificed to the god, to the altar that was closest to it. And if a sheep laid down and there was no altar or god nearby, they should build one to an unknown god and then slaughter that sheep anyway. They wanted to make sure they had all of their bases covered in this. And now Paul looks out and sees one of these. There's, there's many unknown gods. He sees one of them and he builds a bridge and says, let's talk about this unknown god. This unknown god, I want to tell you about this unknown god and I want to make the unknown god known. And he uses it as a springboard. It's brilliant. Now Paul had some criticism for what he did. People even today are troubled that Paul would suggest that a Greek god could actually be the God of the Bible. And modern missionaries sometimes have this problem, this critique, when they use the word Allah or use the name of a God from another culture or another religion as a springboard to talk about the God of the Bible. You can receive criticism for this, but one thing for sure, Paul had their attention. He started right where they were thinking. And then he gives this short but masterful speech. I want to read it to you one more time. Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth as he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day where he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now notice a few thing, things about Paul's speech here. Notice, first of all, that he starts with their culture. In this instance, Paul does not quote from the Bible. He quoted from the Bible when he spoke to Jews who respected the Bible, but here he chooses not to quote the Bible, but he, spoke to, he quotes their own philosophers and poets, for in whom we move and live and have our being. That was the, the, the philosopher Epimenides who had the whole release the sheep idea. We are his offspring. That, again, was another Greek philosopher. He talked to them on their terms, in their words, quoting the sources that they knew and believed. Now question, when Paul quoted one of their philosophers, does this mean that he agreed with everything that particular philosopher taught? Did he? No, he did not. We know Paul did not. 
He starts with where they are, their interests, their thoughts, their ideas, their culture. And because he understands their culture, he's able to communicate about Jesus in ways that they can understand and grasp. He uses their language and their artifacts to point them to Jesus. Notice also, secondly, in his speech, he doesn't water it down. He says some very difficult things. This unknown God, he says, that we're talking about right now, this unknown God, this unknown God is the God, the top God, the God who created everyone and everything, and the God to whom one day every single one of us will be held accountable. He doesn't water it down. And thirdly, notice, he doesn't say it all. Paul, again, gets criticized in this speech because he never really mentions the cross. And how can you talk about Jesus, how can you talk about Christianity, and not talk about the centrality of the cross? Well, Paul understands the centrality of the cross, but he also understands you can't say everything in one sermon, that more will need to be said. They will need to be taught more. Now, let's try to bring his ideas to our 21st century. If we are going to communicate our faith respectfully, clearly, understandably, thoughtfully, we're going to have to start with what the person we're talking to knows. And depending on who you're talking to, that might mean that you're going to quote the Quran or a movie or a book or a popular song of the day. And when you do that, when you quote a song, does that mean that you agree with everything that songwriter uh, said and does? No. Does it mean you're going to agree with that? I was hoping it would get bigger each time that I said that. Does that mean you agree with everything? No, No, of course not. Uh, uh, Is it risky? Yes. Uh, Is it dangerous? Yes, it could be. Uh, Might we be misunderstood and criticized? Absolutely. Is it biblical? Reread Acts 17 and you will see this is thoroughly biblical. But does it work? What are the results? And the text includes that. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. That's always going to be the case. Some people sneer. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. They showed interest. At that, Paul left the council, and a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them, Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So when he shared his message, some sneered, some mocked, some wanted more information, and some believed and received. And that's always the response to the gospel. Some mock, some want more information, some receive and believe. And then this text names specifically two people who received and believed. And they're curious names, I think recorded for a reason. You have, first of all, Dionysius the Areopagite. It's an old painting on what he might have looked like. So he was part of the Areopagus. He was one of these 30 influential top philosophers of his day, meaning he was the top of the way people looked at society in that time and place. The second person mentioned was Damaris, a woman. And you remember that women did not have equal standing in Greece. She would not have been at the top of the social ladder. She would have been near the bottom. And there's been some speculation about Damaris because some people have said, you know, respectable women 
wouldn't have been in the marketplace at all in the first century, which have led some to wonder maybe she wasn't a respectable woman. Maybe she was one of the prostitutes that would have been in the marketplace in Athens. At any rate, I think these two names show that people coming to faith include the top of the way they saw the social ladder and the bottom of the way they saw the social ladder and all kinds of people in between. The story of Paul at Mars Hill in Acts 17 needs to be more than just a history lesson because I think this really can instruct us of how to speak to a culture, uh, our own culture. We must engage people where they think. We must start where people are. We must meet them where they are and help them find their way to Jesus. May it be so in us. Will you pray with me now? God, we thank you that there have been people in every generation who passionately and articulately proclaim your reality. We thank you for those who took interest in and patiently explained you and your love in ways that we could understand and grasp. Help us now to play that role for other people. Give us wisdom to know how to connect with people in our day. Use us in our day as you use the Apostle Paul in his. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.